Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, we review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is Preventing and Curing Prostate Cancer, Enhancing Quality of Life, at Prostate Oncology Specialist. My guest today is a good friend, Dr. Mark Schultz. He's Medical Director of Prostate Oncology Specialist. It's an office in, in Marina Del Rey, California, where I've sent many patients and I'm very thankful for. And this is a probably second, third, or fourth interview. I can't remember how long. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Is it sunny down there and you get to look out at the harbor? Yeah, yeah. We have a beautiful view. We get a little bit of June gloom down here, but if we complain while we're living in Marina Del Rey, we've got some sort of mental illness. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. Well, I always I kind of want to start off the same place because you, you've taken care of so many of my patients. And, and for people who don't understand, I live in Sacramento, California. So I send them down to prostate oncology specialists because, number one, they take great care if they do have prostate cancer. But also, they give reassurance if people don't have it and evaluate people in a non-invasive way that... Well, none of my patients come back and complain to me. In fact, all of them come back and thank me for making a, a quick trip down to... Marina Del Rey, California. So with that said, I want to ask Dr. Schultz, when did you get an interest in really saying, I'm going to focus on prostate cancer patients only? It's been about 20 years, Kurt. My ex-partner, Dr. Steven Strum, and I uh, were having lunch one day, and we were doing general oncology, but we'd been garnering a reputation for our prostate cancer work. And we just looked at each other and said, why don't we just do only prostate, and it took us all of about three seconds to make that decision. The, the advantages of specializing in one thing are great for patients and for doctors. Medicine, the knowledge is exploding so quickly, it's very humbling to try and keep up, and we're even challenged keeping up with a single disease, but it's much more manageable, and we, you know, we can have a comfort level with our knowledge that we really have a sense of the whole field and not feel like we're shortchanging patients by not knowing what we're doing. Has your vision changed now, some 20 years later, about how to, well, your vision of how you thought you'd treat prostate cancer? Well, things have evolved towards managing much earlier, smaller cancers. Our technology to detect it early has improved so much. And so in the old days, we were treating with a lot of chemotherapy and unfortunate people with advanced metastatic disease. These days, we're really focused on trying to preserve quality of life and wherever possible to avoid treatment in men with these small inconsequential type cancers. So what is the real incidence of prostate cancer? Is it increasing or are we just getting better at diagnosing earlier or what's the deal? I think you're right. I think it is better diagnosing and also life expectancy, even within my career. I'm 61 years old now, and when I was in training, if someone lived into their early 70s, we thought, wow, they lived a full life. We can, uh, we can let them go on to, into the next world with peace that we gave them the maximum benefit. Uh, that sort of attitude would be ridiculous in this era. People, we've got, uh, we counted them up about six months ago. We've got 45 patients that are over age 90, and these are people that somehow get through all the horrible traffic to Marina Del Rey. <laughs> and, you know, that actually brings up an interesting point. One of my colleagues asked me is, you know, when do you stop screening? Like do it in a PSA or something like that. But I guess the bigger question is, when do you stop screening for prostate cancer or you just, there is no age? Yeah, we, we don't have an age. Now, the whole theory of stopping screening is that it can be dangerous to find prostate cancer if you get 
into the hands of a cowboy doctor who wants to treat everything. In other words, the treatment can be worse than the disease. However, as people get older, one of the things that we've learned is that their immune systems get weaker as well, or potentially do, and the cancers can behave more aggressively in the older guys. So we don't stop screening. We'll check PSA, but we just have a very off attitude in treatment, uh, reserving treatment only for the most dire situations when people get old. You know, one of the things, um, well, what are the statistics of prostate cancer? But I always hear these kind of big numbers of people dying from prostate cancer. And the truth is, for me, I have so much confidence. I, I mean, I can't remember the last patient of mine that died of prostate cancer, especially since I sent them to you guys. So it's like, it's kind of a, a mixed bag that I think about prostate cancer. On one hand, I know it's very prevalent, but I don't see the lethality of it. Can you kind of put that in perspective? Yeah, well, my old uh, co-partner in the book we wrote, Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers, uh, he said that prostate cancer should be considered a chronic illness, sort of like you know adult onset diabetes or hypertension. And I thought that was a, quite an insight because that word cancer sounds so imminent and, and unfortunately is uh, so such a dangerous thing if it's lung cancer or colon cancer, one of these other types. But you're absolutely right. It, people generally will succumb to old age before the disease gets them. And if someone dies, and we occasionally have someone die of prostate cancer, even though we've got over 2,000 patients with prostate cancer here, you look back and you say, oh, this person was diagnosed in 1992. Okay, so we're looking at over 20 years that they had battled the disease and then finally uh, it caught up with them. So it's hard to conceptualize an illness that runs such a long time course and, of course, in most cases certainly is not deadly. The homepage of the American Cancer Society has a neat statistic, which I repeat over and over to try and calm people down when they hear about the word cancer. The five-year survival of, of men diagnosed in 2016 with prostate cancer, the five-year survival is 100%. No one dies within five years. Then you go, let's push it out to 10 years. The 10-year survival of people diagnosed in 2016 is predicted to be 99%. One in 100 men uh, is predicted to succumb, and this is without any new technological improvements, which, as you know, in this era, is unex we're expecting a lot of new stuff. Push it out to 15 years, and we're looking at a 6% uh, chance of mortality at 15 years. So it gives you an idea of the long timelines we're dealing with and fortunately that you know close to 95 percent of men will not ever experience any early mortality from prostate cancer within 15 years well that begs the insight for me is that if you're keeping people alive long you want to sh you really want to make sure the treatment isn't destroying quality of life absolutely absolutely quality of life as you said and then also how can we ignore other relevant factors like, you know, good health practices that I know you're so involved in, Kurt, the, uh, you know, proper diet, exercise, screening for other illnesses and tumors uh, become incredibly important. So let's stay with the kind of horror stories that originally, for example, is the radical prostatectomy dead? Well, I wish I, it would, but like the zombies, you know, it lives on because the surgeons are trained in not only doing surgery, but how to how to convince people to, you know, dance with them in the operating room. surgeon who's not operating is no longer a surgeon. So the uh, popularity of radical prostatectomy was actually justified 15 to 20 years ago when we thought every cancer was deadly, which was wrong now we know, but we didn't know it back then. And back then the uh, radiation options were scary bad, just terrible stuff. But both of those have changed. We've now learned that many of the prostate cancers are not life-threatening, and newer 
uh, technology in the radiation realm has completely revolutionized, making treatments that are much less toxic than surgery and far more effective. So then radically destroying the quality of life, it, does, it shouldn't happen in a prostate cancer patient. That is correct. And uh, this is, uh, you know, people get so frightened, and of course they're sitting across the table from a very, you know, charismatic and compelling uh, surgeon who's practiced his spiel over and over and over again to smoothly, you know, get people to agree to go into the operating room. But the scary things, I mean, the, the things that can happen with surgery, besides dying, uh, you know, there is a 1 in 200 incidence of death from surgery, uh, are some of the most devastating things to the identity of a man. I and mean, we're talking about shrinkage of the male member, crookedness, ejaculating urine, you know, obviously incontinence, wearing diapers. Uh, I, I, these things are so horrible, I hate to even mention them. But uh, it, it's the, the warning needs to go out that there are better options than surgery. Well, I guess I, I bring that up, one, because I remember the old... the. I went to one of your conferences and had, you know, a speaker, a urologist talk about kind of the horror stories. But I was just thinking back on my own patients I've sent you. I've never had one that's even considered. I don't even know anybody who's had a radical prostatectomy. So yeah, like, they're really unnecessary. It's, it's sort of a throwback. And it's hard for the people that had their heyday, the golden age of urology was you know, 10, 15 years ago when surgery, not a good option, but better than the others. But now the technology has superseded surgery. Unfortunately, it lives on. Like I, I, I used the example of a zombie that we can't stop. So how about the other treatments? What are the ones, like, for example, in the olden days, I thought, you know, radiation kind of scared me because it was like kind of a shotgun approach. Now, now has that been so fine-tuned that yeah. there's very limited damage? Yeah, they have incredible accuracy now to millimeter, millimeter targeting accuracy. It's, it's just phenomenal. Um, it's not without risk. Uh, it's, they're less than surgery, but they're not inconsequential. Uh, the, probably the newest and the hottest area right now, of course, is that uh, most people are aware of active surveillance where people can actually safely watch uh, the condition and delay treatment, sometimes indefinitely. And then the new focal treatments where with the great imaging that we have now, instead of ablating the whole prostate, you just treat the section where the tumor is. And that, of course, is associated with a lot fewer side effects as well. So let's talk about screening. Let's start from, like, you know, basic primary care 101. How would you like to see... This is one of my pet areas of interest because one of the most revolutionary things has happened in this area. The problems have been so confusing because you hear the government saying, don't even do PSA screening. Their fears are, of course, that you'll fall into the hands of a surgeon and get unnecessary surgery. The problem is not PSA testing. The problem is the standard practice of doing a random 12-core biopsy of the, of the prostate. This occurs in about a million men annually. And this overdiagnoses little tiny cancers that are never going to hurt people. So what's the solution? A new imaging technology called multi-parametric MRI. And I'm trying to educate all our primary care doctors that instead of sending men with high PSAs, to urologists to get random biopsies, you know, a bunch of needles stuck in the rectum. What a horrible, horrible thing if you have an alternative. Instead, to refer to qualified centers that can do uh, multi-parametric MRI and look and see with an imaging study if cancer is present. There's a list of facilities. These are springing up all over the place now, and it does require qualified people to do this type of imaging. But there's a list of facilities at the Prostate Cancer Research Institute's website, pcri.org. So any man that's facing uncertainty about a high PSA, I tell them to you know, look up one of those facilities and get a scan. 
and try and uh, leave the, the 12 core biopsy out of the picture. So let me ask you just about that scan. So number one, if I look on this list for myself, in other words, are these centers popping up all over and some are poor quality and some are good quality? Absolutely or? true, yes. We can't say that we've certified the people that are on the uh, PeaceRide website, but these are places where patients of ours have uh, gone for treatment and it seems that they're doing reasonably good work. I am super selective. I've been relying mostly upon the uh, UCLA facility here in Los Angeles. They do consistently good work. And if you're going to be entrusting your life to, uh, you know, to new technology, you want to go to a cutting-edge place. So uh, you do need to be selective. And uh, different centers, some of them that are just starting up, uh, ha- are still in their learning curve, and uh, they can miss things. So thanks for asking. And that's really important because quality is important. So how much does it cost? And one of my concerns of primary care, let's say I refer somebody, do I have to have a set of criteria that it would generally get paid for? They've done cost analysis, first off, and it is less expensive to do an MRI than a, than a biopsy, which is good news. But the question is, well, what kind of coverage are people getting? In our experience, it's very rare for patients to have their insurance deny getting a scan instead of a biopsy. We get one or two a year where the insurance company says, no, the standard approach is you need to have your prostate stabbed a bunch before we'll do a scan. Obviously, that makes us all cringe. The actual out-the-door cost, because many patients are willing to pay to not have these uh, biopsies done, is about <laughs> eight or nine hundred bucks for the scan. Sure, and the scan is minutes or yeah, prep yeah. Or so what? the thing with MRI scans is that you can't have a pacemaker. If you have some claustrophobia, then uh, you may need some sedation. The actual time in the scanner is somewhere between forty-five and sixty minutes. So it is a little bit time-consuming. No probes in the rectum as there used to be uh, required, so that's good news. Uh, there will be an IV uh, where they uh, infuse some contrast media. It's overall a far less traumatic process than you know laying on your side and having someone repeatedly pr- uh, plunge a needle into your behind. So I know as, as a clinician, when you write their script, is it with contrast or is it they automatically? Yeah, the it? way you write it, we request a three Tesla, that's the most high-powered MRI. So it's 3T, multi-parametric, MRI of the prostate. Multiparametric is inclusive of contrast, diffusion-weighted imaging, and T2. And I know that's just gobbledygook, but there's, it's pretty much all been hammered out of what a multiparametric MRI of the prostate is now. So if you order a 3T multiparametric MRI, if you don't get the right thing back in terms of imaging, that means that that center shouldn't be doing them at all. That's, uh, it's pretty basic now. So let's get to the criteria. So if a person goes in and they have a PSA of like, oh, I don't know, let's say four or five, which is not outrageous, right. is that a good enough reason, just saying an elevated PSA? or did they have I to think see? so. You know, I tell patients with slightly high PSAs, you know, repeat it once and make sure you refrain from sexual activity the night before. If you're having urinary symptoms suggestive of prostatitis, wait a while, you know, give it a month or two to settle down, maybe take a little bit of a leave. And uh, if the PSA drops back to normal and your doctor doesn't feel any bumps, then you're probably fine without any further eval. If the repeat is persistently up at four to five, then I think it's prudent to get a scan. I tell people you're going to find three things on a scan. Uh, One is all clear. You're done. Maybe uh, just keep screening. Number two, you know, uh-oh, there's a highly suspicious spot, in which case they do, uh, they recommend a targeted biopsy, not 12 stabs in the prostate randomly, but a single biopsy just of the suspicious spot to try and determine if it's something consequential or not. And the third scenario is where you get sort of a, huh, what's that little shadow type thing? In those situations, we just repeat the scan in 6 to 12 months, and as long as it's not changing, we just keep an eye on it.
So you mentioned something there, no sexual activity before PSA level. How about a digital rectal exam? How about riding a bicycle for six hours a day before? Sure. What are some of, yeah, the, bicycle, some of the things? Yeah, the bicycle thing can be a real, it sort of depends. You know, some of the bike seats, you sort of sit on your um, on your ischium or on your behind. It doesn't push on the prostate. But some of those racing bikes, you know, it jams right up there in your perineum. And that can definitely cause PSA to uh, be abnormal. The other one you mentioned, the... Uh, the, the, D- the DRE, sometimes yes, I get caught. Yeah, right. The, the people talk about, uh, you know, you go to the doctor's office, he feels your prostate and draws your blood after that. Uh, yeah, there are reports that that can increase PSA, although it's probably not as radical a concern as, uh, you know, like sex the night before or riding a bike. Okay, good. Um, we are talking to Dr. Mark Schultz, Medical Director of Prostate Oncology Specialists, a wonderful place in Marina Del Rey, California, where they evaluate prostate cancer and treat it. And so let's go on to, I had a question. Have you ever had just a healthy man coming in for screening, have a PSA below one, and he has prostate cancer? Absolutely, yes. Fortunately, not common. Two situations. One is some men, as they get older, their male hormone levels or testosterone levels start to drop down. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. It's very common for men's testosterone levels to be running low as they get older. So that can artificially suppress PSA. The typical fallback position is to do a regular finger exam once a year on the prostate. Uh, If there's any abnormalities felt, then you have to work someone up just like they have a high PSA. So the other situation is for people can have a normal testosterone, uh, but there are rare variants of prostate cancer, probably only one in a thousand, where they don't make very much PSA. And some of these are actually a little more dangerous. Uh, so this is why doc, uh, patients that all, should always have an annual uh, digital rectal exam once a year, just for those rare exceptions to the rule. I think we already answered it. There's not an uh, age cutoff for screening for prostate cancer, in your opinion. Yeah, and of course, that's spoken by a guy that uh, you know looks at <laughs> prostates all day long. It just seems ridiculous that a little $30 blood test, that we'd skip over it. It's such an easy screening test. Part of the annual physical men should be getting anyway. If we had to drop it, if there were limited resources, you know, the chances of missing someone something in someone over 85 that would be dangerous or harmful in their life expectancy is very small, but it's not zero. So at your facility, when someone comes in as a new patient, I, I know they get various blood tests. If you could go over those, and then most often you, you do a color Doppler ultrasound. Is the day of a color Doppler going to not non-exist because of the new MRI technology? Well, the, the color Doppler that we do, I think, you know, our clinic is unique. I mean, we have three full-time medical oncologists only doing prostate cancer. That doesn't exist really anywhere else in the United States. So we have such a large volume, seeing over 30 patients a day, we can develop the uh, skills to image the prostate, uh, I think with almost similar accuracy as a multiparametric MRI. It's very convenient. It's 15 minutes done right in the office. But it's not ever, the reason I've never pushed it as for general use is that unless someone is doing, uh, you know, several a day, it takes practice and experience. And uh, and just sticking an imaging study on something, on some person doesn't mean you're going to get accurate information. So we're not concerned about for our own use and for the other select use of uh, specialty centers, but uh, multiparametric MRI is going to become the de facto standard throughout the country. 
I didn't know. There's another part to your question. I don't know if I, I answered the whole question there. Well, I mean, when would you, you do it because of volume and convenience and your guys are really good at it? Right. Um, so oh, I remember you were saying, well, what are the sort of, what's sort of the standard stuff we do when we see someone with a high PSA? And the answer is we look at the whole person uh, just like you do. And since most prostate cancers are not deadly, uh, we try and take the opportunity for men that might otherwise not even be willing to see a doctor to make sure their blood pressure is okay, their cholesterol is okay, that they don't have, uh, you know, hidden colon cancers. There's a new uh, screening test called Cologuard that's just as accurate as a scope where you can just do it on a stool sample. These new genetic tests are amazing. So we look at the whole person, give a good general physical, and then try and assess if prostate cancer is present or absent and use the, using a color Doppler, sometimes an MRI, PSA testing, of course, and in certain cases, uh, a targeted biopsy if we see an abnormality. So it's a, constructing a, basically an overall profile, and this is a, as you know, such a sensitive area of men's bodies. I mean, it affects our sexuality or urinary function. Uh, you know, we try and uh, carefully uh, assess if an intervention is truly justified uh, in context of what we know is a very low-grade chronic condition. So I want to get two more questions on biopsies just to make sure that everybody, if they have to get one, get it done right. It should always have a ultrasound-guided biopsy, um, generally speaking. There's three types of targeted. I call them targeted and random. Random is where they, one patient said it's like around the clock, right? You, you give them uh, 12 biopsies just spread over the gland. That's yesterday's treatment. It's, uh, it can, you know, cause infections and pain and, and overdiagnosis. And then targeted biopsies, and there's three ways to do targeted biopsies. Uh, you mentioned color Doppler. That's the most common way that we do it because we have that skill set. The, um, you can do biopsies in an MRI now. So if an MRI finds a spot, uh, the MRI people themselves can actually target a single needle at the spot. It's called an in-bore, I-N, new word, B-O-R-E, uh, inside the MRI, in-bore uh, biopsy. And uh, the third way to do it is to take the MRI images and use special computerized software to fuse that with, an, uh, with a routine ultrasound, not a color, color Doppler. And that's called a fusion biopsy where they use the MRI information to direct a single needle at a spot seen on an MRI, but you use an ultrasound to do it. Okay, so that gets to the point. In other words, and so are they doing like instead of 12, do they do 4 to 6 or what? Yeah, is well, the, sometimes uh, it's sort of sad because with this new technology, you can you get away with just maybe one, two, or three biopsies, and that's our policy. But the old methods die slowly, and some centers even get paid by the biopsy. So, <laughs> so they'll do 12, 15, 20 biopsies. Uh, it's just disgusting. And, and it's, well, how is it justified? Well, it's always been done that way for the last 20 years. So it's the, the doctors are desensitized to what they're doing to people. Oh, just, so that would, be, would that be a question to ask the MRI? Well, I guess how many bi biopsies are you going to do even though yeah, we're doing it under MRI? Absolutely. And I've had patients, uh, you know, over at UCLA, they've done a lot of the research on this sort of stuff. They do great biopsies, but then for research purposes, they'll do another 10 or 15 biopsies just to, quote, check out what's going on and for their research. And I've had a number of patients just literally walk out halfway through the process, you know, just disgusted that they keep jabbing the needle in over and over and over again when they don't need to. So, uh, yeah, you should always talk to the doctors and say in a, and find out in advance how many total biopsies are planned and hold them to it. 
And should it be less than six or six or less? Yeah, or it should reasonable? definitely be less than six. Usually you can get away with two or three. Wow. Well, that, that is a huge pearl because everybody would think they could just go get the MRI and everything's going to be copacetic with the, yeah. if it was and then And then out. they'll spring this, uh, well, we're going to do a random biopsy in addition. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this is part of the doctors, you know, they're just covering their ass, right? It's always been done that way, and medical malpractice is based on the way it's always been done. But this just becomes a real problem when technology outdistances, you know, the standard practice. We have to be prepared to move on for the benefit of patients. So I know we got a few minutes left, so there's two areas I want to get at. One is, what role does diet play? And two, what are some of the new treatments? So quickly, can you tell me, I remember you told me a story of how you got involved with um, diets. Some macrobiotic people came in, and they wanted you that you to follow them, and you observed a, a a tumor or mark um, a regularity go down was there something like that yeah that yeah, yeah you excellent memory because i know it's been a number of years since we've spoken and that is absolutely true what's unique about prostate cancer is the psa blood test which goes up when the cancer is getting worse and goes down when the cancer is getting better so you can track different interventions very easily after a man's had surgery this is the only good thing about surgery is that it takes all the psa from the prostate gland away and so 100 percent of psa in the blood is from cancer so men would come in to see me with a rising PSA after surgery. We knew the cancer was back and, you know, maybe going from 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 over a period of months. And I became a believer when these people would put themselves on these stringent vegetarian or macrobiotic diets and their PSA would literally flatten out and stop rising. Uh, the diets are pretty radical. They would lose weight, get skinny, sometimes frightening everybody, but felt perfectly fine. But it definitely was effective. So the logic of it is sort of simple when you think about it. Cancer hurts people by growing. Well, if you want something to grow fast and grow well, feed it better. Give it lots of protein and lots of fats and sugars, and you can induce better growth. On the other hand, if you deny these uh, nutrients uh, to the cancer, it's not going to grow very well. In fact, your body can subsist on much uh, tighter and more stringent diet than a cancer can. This. I just actually visited Dean Ornish's um, program for heart disease at UCLA. But yeah. and if you go on to his, if you go on his site, um, he has some you know his studies on prostate cancer yeah. where the PSA goes down under you know low grade prostate cancer. So that's a very solid approach. Yes, yeah, he's, he's he's validated scientifically. His his dietary recommendations and studies are right on target. I had one thing about PSA that was interesting that you I learned from a patient that went to you. You can have a PSA of, let's say, 10, but it can be normal because you have a large prostate because it has to do with the, just the volume of the prostate. Can you explain that? It doesn't yes, have to be but, cancer. And this is one of the other cool things about getting a scan like a multiparametric MRI. So men's prostates can vary from 10 cubic centimeters to 300 cubic centimeters. Now, let me just give you an idea of what that means. It means about the size of a... Uh, you know, a little bit bigger than a grape, up to the size of a, uh, a baseball. So uh, if the gland, or since the gland is producing PSA, the level in the blood is proportionate to the volume of the gland. So what we do is we measure the size of the prostate. And let's say a man has a, a 40 cc prostate. That's kind of normal for a 60-year-old. You divide the 40 cubic centimeters by 10, and the average PSA, if a person doesn't have cancer, is around 4. If they have an 80cc prostate, you divide it by 10, the average PSA is going to be around 8. And so this tells us, this puts the PSA in context. 
So, so many of the patients that we see in our practice in Marina del Rey come here because their PSA is 8 to 10. Their doctors have biopsied them three or four times looking for cancer. We do a, a quick color doppler, discover they've got a 100cc prostate, and a PSA of 10 is normal for them. Poor guys are getting biopsied over and over and over again looking for cancer when their PSA is really normal. So you could only clarify the volume by either color Doppler or getting the MRI? That is, the is, that mo- that is true. That's really the most accurate thing. A smart doctor that feels you know, prostates all day long can kind of guess pretty accurately the size of the gland. But uh, honestly, ever since we started doing imaging 10 years ago, I've lost that skill because it's so easy to just do a scan. <laughs> so we'll, we'll round it up here. Are there any exciting new prostate cancer treatments that you're yeah we've, about? yeah we've talked mostly about early stage which is entirely appropriate that's where 80 to 90 percent of the people are but there's some amazing things for advanced stage prostate cancers the most tremendous is this there's been a giant breakthrough in immune therapy for uh, not only prostate for lung cancer for for uh, melanoma uh, they've found the switches that um, take off the uh, the breaks of the immune system your, all of our immune systems are heavily regulated. If they get out of control, we end up with uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and all kinds of dreadful things from overactive immune activity. So all that regulatory stuff is exploited by cancer. Uh, it, in a way, it tricks our immune system to be highly regulated so that it doesn't uh, el- eradicate the cancer. So uh, Bristol-Myers and uh, Merck have invented some medicines now that take and, and turn the pull the brakes off the immune system, and some amazing responses are occurring in otherwise hopeless diseases. So this is also starting to translate into prostate, and it's just, I mean, we've heard so many things, oh, they've cured cancer at this and rats and blah, 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 and we don't even listen to it anymore. But this is the real deal. We're going to see a transformative uh, situation with cancer going forward over the next 10 years due to the breakthroughs that are occurring in the area of immunology. Well, Dr. Schultz, I know you got to run and see a patient. Um, people can self-refer, correct, to your facility? Oh, yeah, they can call us, and uh, they can call you. And uh, uh, the, it's easy to find us. Just Google Prostate Oncology, and, and we pop right out. Right, prostateoncology.com. Well, thanks, Dr. Schultz. Thank you so much for taking time, and uh, we'll talk again maybe next year. (laughs) What a pleasure, Kirk. Thanks so much, and you have a wonderful day. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And remember, you can listen to this on my website, stayinghealthytoday.com, or up on iTunes. I'll talk to you soon. You have a fabulous day.